If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. We are in James chapter 4. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Lord, what, what good news the gospel is for people who are lost, for people who are separated from you. What good news that we can be restored to you and that you give our lives meaning and purpose. Open our hearts to hear and receive your word this morning. Amen. Well, here is the heart of the letter. This is James' great crescendo. It is a call for radical repentance. I call repentance radical because our need to repent contradicts how we typically see ourselves and how the world around us tells us we should see ourselves. Repentance means seeing ourselves for who we really are. Repentance means acknowledging just how short we fall of God's glory. Repentance means not maintaining a self-image, but shattering it. And maybe even knowing shame. It is radical because in a day when success is measured by how good, measured by how good we feel about ourselves, how we promote ourselves, how well we exalt ourselves, repentance is rejected if it's even thought of at all. It's not seen as necessary. I think it's inevitable that we ask this question in studying James's letter, and that is, to whom is James writing this? Is James writing this to unbelievers, those who don't know Christ or have rejected the gospel? Or is he writing this to Christians? Is he writing this to those who have believed in Christ? Is the double-minded person whom James confronts repeatedly throughout the letter an unbeliever who is self-deceived into thinking that he or she is a Christian when really they're not? Or is he talking to someone who is a Christian but has kind of become entangled in the enticements of the world and is living in sin, is living in a state of this double-mindedness or fractured soul? Because sometimes James says things that indicate he has believers in mind. Throughout, he calls us brothers. 
which includes sisters. It's a term for all of us. Brothers, my beloved brothers. There is the encouragement to endure trials because trials are God's tools in which he's refining our faith for eternity. He will point to hope for endurance in chapter 5. To call us, address us in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, as adulteresses would seem to mean that those to whom he's speaking are cheating on an existing relationship. The term for adulterers, and remember we talked about from the Old Testament, that was never, that was never a term that was used to confront the nations around Israel, just Israel, because they were the covenant people. But at other times, it sounds as though he really questions the reality of our Christianity. Chapter 2, verse 14. Can that faith save him? Can a faith that is claimed but has no works, can that really save somebody? James is addressing people who are claiming to have faith but don't have any works. The faith without works cannot save. And their lives obviously lack those works. They're these blunt confrontations, sinners, double-minded. And what about chapter 4, verse 4? Enmity with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. I don't know of any other place in the New Testament where a believer is considered or called an enemy of God. And it would seem impossible given what the New Testament teaches about reconciliation, that we are reconciled to God. We're going to see another passage in chapter 5 where he warns the wealthy and the powerful. Boy, it doesn't sound like he's talking to someone who is a Christian, a believer. I think the answer is this. James is talking to both. He writes to us as believers, but recognizes that not all of us are truly Christians. He gives us the benefit of the doubt, but he is pointing out that our lives don't match up with what we claim. In other words, in a way, James is right. What am I supposed to believe about you? How should I categorize you as a Christian or not? Because James doesn't have the luxury of knowing who has true and saving faith and who is self-deceived by a false faith, able to only make claims of faith. So he writes to us as believers, but he removes any grounds for self-deceived, false claims such as, well, I hear the word when we don't do the word. A claim like, I love my neighbor as myself, as the golden law, the royal law says, but we show partiality. I have faith, but are there works? Is it a faith that is transforming your life? 
I even aspire to teaching and leading in the church. I sense a calling to bless God with my words. But our tongues are unrestrained in cursing people who are made in God's image. I'm wise, but is it a wisdom from above or is it an earthly wisdom that yields strife and conflict? Therefore, the answer is the same. Radical repentance is the path to restoring a relationship with God for the worldly Christian and for the non-Christian. Either way, you hear these things from James, these confrontations, this kind of peeling back of the layers of our hearts, the exposure to the cracks and the duplicity. Whether we're believers or whether we're not even Christians, the response, the right response is the same. It is repentance. James has been teaching, he's been instructing us, he's been confronting us at times, but he's also been reasoning with us. And here in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, James stands up like the prophets of the Old Testament. He tears his robe, he throws ashes on his head, and he calls us back to God. He is no longer in the role of a teacher, but the prophet issuing forth with the authority of heaven a divine command to repent. What does this radical repentance look like? Well, remember that verses 7 through 10 spring from verses 1 through 6, especially verse 6, which says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace, James says. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's grace is greater than our envy. It is greater than our selfish ambition. God's grace is greater than our friendship, our compromise with the world. Our God is a gracious God. But... We cannot receive his grace. We cannot know his grace and cling to our pride. Our self-importance, our self-sufficiency. We have to deal with the duplicity in our hearts. We have to deal with our double-mindedness. God gives grace to the humble. James here issues six calls to a radical repentance so that we will be restored to God. Six calls to a radical repentance so that we will be restored to God. And first is a call to submission, verse 7. A call to submission. Submit yourselves, therefore, The number one first thing we must do is submit ourselves to God. Because God gives grace to the humble and opposes the proud, submit. Bend the knee. Offer the heart, the life. This word submit is a word that means arrange yourself under. It's another military word. 
We've come across a couple here in James. This is another one. It's a military word, like a soldier places themselves under a commanding officer. To submit to God, then, is to position yourself under his hand. It is to surrender to Christ's lordship. It is to relinquish your rule over your life. It is to place yourself at his command. This is submission. We don't like that word. Our culture rejects that word. John Calvin wrote this. We are not our own. Therefore, let us forget ourselves and our own interests as far as possible. But we are God's own. To him, therefore, let us live and die. We are God's own. Therefore, let his wisdom and will dominate all our actions. We are God's own. Therefore, let every part of our existence be directed towards him as our only legitimate goal. John Calvin sometimes is perceived as being this kind of ivory tower, disconnected theologian. And he was brilliant. But he was passionate about living the Christian life. And he's right. We are God's own. I will never forget the turning point of my own life as a 14-year-old youth. I still vividly remember lying in a college dorm room in Independence, Missouri, while our youth group was on a missions trip in prayer, in tears for much of the night, submitting my life to God. Lord, I will take the path of obedience no matter what it costs me. And I will always remember the glory and the sweetness and the freedom that it was to place myself under his sovereign, sure, and loving hand. Many of you would share the same testimony. This is not a secret ingredient to the successful Christian life. Do you understand? This is the consistently revealed fundamental of the Christian life. When Jesus cried, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23, he was calling for submission. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to follow Christ. James says, God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit your life to God. Stop being your own boss. Surrender your ambitions, your agendas, your relationships. Let those ambitions and agendas, let them now be crucified. Taking up your cross is crucifying yourself. It is dying to self. That's what Jesus was talking about. That's the first step. Submit yourselves to God. The second is, a call to resistance, a call to resistance. Again, verse seven, 
Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submitting to God means resisting the devil. Now, notice, James does not tell us to rebuke the devil. James is not telling us to bind the devil. This idea of rebuking and binding Satan, these are popular ideas with some Christians. But nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to rebuke Satan or bind him. God rebukes Satan. Jesus rebukes Satan. The archangel Michael rebukes Satan. The apostles cast out demons and that probably is where some of the confusion is rooted. If the apostles did it, we should be able to do it too. But never are we told anywhere to ever rebuke or bind the devil. We are told repeatedly to resist or to withstand him. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. A roaring lion. This is a hunting predator. Satan is not waiting for you to just fall into his traps, his schemes. He's out hunting you. He prowls around like a roaring lion. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Not rebuke him, not bind him, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Paul doesn't use the word resist here. His word is stand. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, withstand, resist. So Peter, Paul, James, they all tell us to resist, to stand against, to withstand the devil and his schemes. James reveals that the devil's schemes are deceit. He is the master of illusion. It is the devil's scheme to create the illusion that we are mature, not duplicitous. Instead, we're already whole. And that instead, it just might be God who is duplicitous. It might be God who is double-minded. It is the devil's scheme to puff up our pride and disguise it to blind us to the fractures in our own hearts places where we need to repent, that need to be brought out into the light, turned from, 
It is the devil's scheme to deceive us into thinking we are wise, that we are spiritual people when really we are friends with the world. We are acting as enemies of God. James has already shown that demons are aligned with false faith, chapter 2, verse 19. He has shown that the tongue is ignited by hell, chapter 3, verse 6. And he has shown that earthly so-called wisdom is really demonic in origin, chapter 3, verse 15. So all of this worldliness in the church, our preoccupation with wealth, with status, favoritism toward the rich, discrimination against others, the lack of works, the vicious use of the tongue, the conflict and the quarreling, the envy and the ambition, these are all schemes of the devil. How do we resist? By humbling ourselves, by submitting to God. And there's a promise here. If we resist him, he will flee. He will flee. The enemy has no power. He has no authority over you when you are living in humble submission to God. Because his lies are unveiled. Our fractures are exposed. The hypocrisies in our lives. That disparity between what we say and what we actually do. We are free to come into the light of the gospel and to have these fractures healed, mended, made whole. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Thirdly, there is a call to intimacy, a call to intimacy with God. Verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a glorious invitation. Draw near. Approach God. Come into his presence. In the Old Testament scriptures, these words near and far were used to refer to Israel as the people of God who were near. They were God's chosen people who had access to him, who would, could worship him, who had a basis, a covenant basis for a relationship with God, to know God, to enjoy him, and far was used to describe people outside of the nation of Israel, people outside of the covenant. In other words, Gentiles, who were considered far, separated from God, with no access to him, no way of knowing him. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, about us as Christians, now that Jesus died on a cross and is now making one new man out of Jew and Gentile. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now we have access to God because of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is this access to God then that is the basis for James's call to intimacy with God. 
God is now near, and we are to draw near to him in personal devotion. This is an invitation to commune, to seek God, to enter into his presence. It is a call to intimate fellowship. Even the people of God who have this astounding privilege of access to God can abuse that blessing. The Lord through Isaiah sums this up in Isaiah 29 verse 13. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. It's almost like James is reading Isaiah chapter 29 as he confronts the duplicity in our lives. This double-mindedness. Is this not what James is saying? That we say one thing, but our hearts are far from God. Drawing near to God is the antidote to idolatry. Remember, James has confronted us. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That confrontation of being an adulterous people was the prophetic cry against idolatry when the people of God forsook the covenant with God to worship false gods. And we... I mentioned last time how that's where our conflict and our desires come from. We can't have what we want, and anything that we want that we can't have at any given moment is the God of our life in that moment. The answer is draw near to God. Draw near to Him. If we are guilty of adultery with our own ambitions, envying, and attacking one another, and whatever we want we can't have as our God, then drawing near to God weans us from that friendship with the world. Draw near to him. So James calls us back. Draw near to God. Seek him. Put away the idols of the world with all of their illusions of satisfaction. True repentance is a seeking after God. It is a drawing near to him. And yet again, there is this magnificent promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He will draw near to you. See, James is contrasting. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Draw near to God, and God doesn't flee. God draws near to you. God draws near to you. It is said, and I think it is true, that the Lord is more ready to forgive us and restore us than we are to be forgiven and restored. That's what you were created for. That's why you're made. Why am I here? What is my life about? I don't know what job you're going to do, what school you're going to go to, who you're going to marry. What kind of kids you're going to have, or if you're going to have kids. But your purpose and your meaning is to know the God who created you. To draw near to him. And 
You will never know meaning. You will never know purpose. And you will never know peace until you draw near to God. So there is this call then to intimacy with God, to draw near to him. Fourthly, James calls us to purity. He calls us to purity again, verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The one who draws near to God enters the presence of God and is on holy ground. David poses this question in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He's talking about going up the hill to the temple. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The hands, it's a symbol. He's, he is capturing everything we do, all of the activities of life, our behavior, the hands, the hearts, everything that goes on the inside of us, our thoughts, our intentions, our motives, our feelings. The hands and the hearts mean the whole person, a whole person. James is using the imagery of the ceremonial washings that the law required for people to enter the temple or for the priest to enter the Holy of Holies. All, there were all kinds of different ways of washing and washing the hands. James is pointing to those because they were pictures of the need to be cleansed. And we know that we can only be cleansed by the forgiveness of God that is provided in Christ, and yet James is calling us to take the step of exercising or participating in the provision that God has made for us by cleansing ourselves, by cleansing our hands, being purified in heart. It's the same thing as saying, Put away from yourselves to put off certain sins. James is repeating what he said in chapter 1, verse 21. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. It's the same thing. Put it away. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. In other words, bring those, get rid of, expose Repent from, turn from all of those duplicitous cracks in your soul. James' call to purity is a call to, as an act of our wills, do away with all of the things that defile us, all of the things that mix, to forsake sin. You see, we must come to God as we are. We know, we know, or we should know, though we still try to do it. We, we don't come to God once we fix ourselves. Right? We don't get ourselves all dressed up to try to impress God. God sees through everything. There's no way you can totally get your life in order 
and everything that's wrong in your life into some right shape so now you can go before God. What James is getting at here, though, is you cannot come to God still clinging to your pride. You can't come to God still clinging to your status. That's the cleansing of the hands. That's the purifying of the heart. It means not coming to God claiming, I'm already whole. I don't have any cracks. There's no duplicity in me. See, I got myself ready to come into your presence. It's just the opposite. James is saying, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, bring that to God. But you have to bring that in repentance. You can't cling to your pride, to the illusion that you're whole when you're not. That is the call to purity. James also issues a call to sorrow, verse 9, a call to sorrow. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So James is not all that concerned that I have my best life now. Nor does he call us to empty out the negative, make room for more joy, greater confidence, and new levels of influence. That's the newest one coming out this month from Joel Olstein. Empty out the negative, make room for more joy, greater confidence, and new levels of influence. I don't know what the prosperity gurus do with a verse like this, unless it's just to ignore it. James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning, your joy into gloom. And Joel Olstein says, empty out the negative. Make room for more joy, greater confidence, and new levels of influence. You can't have both. You can't have both. That's why we call that kind of gospel a false gospel. James isn't attacking true, abiding joy from God. James is telling us how to get there. This is the path to real joy. This is the way. James is calling us out of self-gratification. He's calling us out of new levels of influence and greater confidence. He's saying, you better repent of that. You better leave that behind. You better mourn. You better weep. He is calling us back from hollow, self-satisfied churchianity. He's calling us back from self-deception, from double-minded religion that covers up just how far it is from God with smiles, platitudes, positivity, and success. The only way to joy is sorrow. The only way to wholeness is brokenness. The only path to a restored fellowship with God is one of mourning over sin. 
ever since Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit. It's the only way. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Only those who recognize their spiritual poverty and are broken over it will know comfort. James wants you to know comfort. He wants me to know comfort. He wants us to know grace. The question is, how ready are you to be broken? How ready am I to be broken? To weep, to mourn. There's a word in the Old Testament that's used, and it's the word contrite. Kind of an archaic word, contrition. It means to think of sin and see our sin the way God sees it. It's talking about being offended with myself. <laughs> That's what contrition is. It's seeing the damage, the offense that my sin is against the God who created me and the damage it does in life and turning from it, being sorrowful for it. How ready are we to be broken? Well, the last call here is a call to humility. So there's a call to submission, call to resistance, call to intimacy with God, call to purity, a call to sorrow, to be broken over our sin, and lastly, a call to humility. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, here we are. We've come back to where we started, right? Humility. God gives grace to the humble. That ends the confrontation of verses one through six as the remedy to friendship with the world. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord summarizes the entire call to repentance This is where it ends. Humble yourselves. Literally, make yourself low. Lower yourself. Make yourself low before the Lord. Repentance brings you into his presence. This is why I say repentance is radical. Do you ever hear anybody make themselves low? Do you ever, you hear people take responsibility sometimes. In fact, we admire them usually. No, oh, that's on me. That's my fault. Whether that's a politician or an athlete or whoever it might be. But do you ever hear them say, you know what, I, I totally don't have confidence in how we're going to play this weekend. But I'm going to go out there and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play like my life depended on. You don't ever hear anybody say that. Do you hear any of our politicians running for office say, I'm inadequate? To be honest, I think I have the right skills, I have the whatever, but I, I think I'm inadequate for this. I'm going to need good people around me. I'm going to need to humble myself. And I'm going to approach day after day being the 
mayor of this city or the governor of this state or the president of this nation, humbly. And there's another promise here, right? He will exalt you. What does that mean for God to exalt us? We know what it means for us to exalt God, right? To, put, to lift God up, to make much of God, to give him glory. What does it mean that God will exalt us? Well, it certainly can't mean that God is going to exalt us up above himself and give us glory. Pride is self-exaltation. And if you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. Humility is God-exalting. And you and I will be exalted if we humble ourselves. For God to exalt us means that he will give us victory. It means that he will vindicate us on that final day when God judges the world. That's what he means. God will exalt you. God will will place you among his glorious ones who win in the end. That's what James is saying. This is a promise for judgment day. It doesn't mean tomorrow, if you humbly repent, you're suddenly going to be successful in life and be exalted and receive wealth and honor and votes. It means that what really counts for eternity is you will will be victorious. God will exalt you because you've humbled yourself now. Jesus taught this same thing. He did it with a parable. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Hmm. Does it sound like anything that James has confronted? Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, most of us, I think, know what these two titles, categories mean. Pharisee, very religious, knows the law, well-educated, probably has some money, some means, influential with the people in terms of their relationships with God. Beloved, admired, respected. He goes up to the temple. And the tax collector, who also may have had money, a lot of tax collectors have money because they cheated their own people to get, to get a cut for themselves before they pass the taxes on to the Roman authorities. It's why they were hated and despised. They were seen as traitors. He also goes to the temple. They both go to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So here's the the Pharisee, when he says he stands by himself, it means that he distances himself from the tax collector. That's what Jesus is, that's the point he's making. So both in there, he identifies like this tax collector here. He says, I'm not like these guys. Now, can you imagine 
going into the temple, praying before God and exalting yourself? Maybe we do it more often than we think, right? He's satisfied with his own righteousness. He's a hearer of the word. He follows the royal law to love his neighbor. He has faith. He blesses God with his mouth. He teaches. He has wisdom and knowledge and strategies. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the Pharisee stands apart, stands separately, but it is separate from the tax collector to not be associated with or contaminated by. The tax collector also stands far off, but it is because of shame. It's because of contrition, conviction. And he pleads for mercy. Verse 14, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says that the exaltation of the sinner is him being justified, being made right before God on the day of judgment. In God's eyes. Double-mindedness, this is the Pharisee. Who's filled with duplicities and fractures. But comes into God's presence, not humbly, not in submission. Not drawing near. Not cleansing his hands and purifying his heart. But claiming to already be cleansed, Claiming to already be pure. It is the tax collector. Comes in broken. Beating his own breast. And begging for mercy. The tax collector is the radical repentance that James is talking about. Charles Spurgeon was right when he wrote, There is a vital connection between soul distress and sound doctrine. Sovereign grace is dear to those who have groaned deeply because they see what grievous sinners they are. This is the path to joy. This is the path to meaning, fulfillment. Let's pray. Lord, may you have mercy. May you have mercy on us. Lord, we know the gospel. We know that our only hope for forgiveness and cleansing, our only confidence, our only boast before you is Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. And yet, Lord, we too get entangled in the world Lord, we become deceived and 
increase that deception with our own self-deception about the conditions of our hearts. And so like the tax collector, we need to continue to beat our own breasts and beg for mercy and come before you for cleansing to submit ourselves to you again today and again tomorrow to humble ourselves. And Lord, we know that if we do, you will give grace. You will draw near to us. The devil will flee. We can know wholeness, meaning, peace because of your promises here. Let those promises woo us and draw us to you in faith. We ask these things in your great name. Thanks, Sean. Let's uh, worship the Lord and.